Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with John Osberg about his new book, Anxious Wealth, Money and Morality Among China's New Rich. This was published with Stanford University Press in 2013. The book is centered on Chengdu, and it uses a series of case studies in this very local circumstance to make claims, to make arguments, and to really inform how we understand the emergence of new forms of masculinity and also forms of business relationships, really ultimately forms of personhood in contemporary China. I won't go into too much detail now about the nature of the arguments of the book and the contents of the book because you'll get that in the rather extensive interview that's to follow, but I will say that Uh, One of the really exciting things about the book is that each case study, each chapter really, not only introduces a cast of really interesting actors into this story, but also takes at its heart either an implicit or explicit contradiction that really helps readers rethink some of the phenomena that we take for granted, some of the concepts that we take for granted, not only in the way that we understand China today, Uh, but also in the way we understand, I think, what it is to be a human being in a society. Uh, He doesn't, you know, he's very careful not to make these claims about, you know, speaking about human nature as as a whole. But I think um, one of the things that we can get out of this, and that I certainly got out of this as a reader, is a way of rethinking some basic conceptual categories that I had certainly taken for granted before, not only in the way that I understood China, but but beyond. So it's a very interesting book. It's a very well-written book. It's a very lively um, set of case studies that he's presented us with. And it was great uh, to talk with John about it. He's got a lot of really interesting stories. Also, you'll hear in the course of the conversation, to, to add to the accounts in the book. And so it's, it's really fascinating to hear him talk about it. I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with John Osberg about his new book, Anxious Wealth, Money and Morality Among China's New Rich. Welcome to the channel of uh, New Books in East Asian Studies, John, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. Thanks for having me. So, John, could you start us off by just saying a little bit about what brought you into the field? How did you become interested in and start working on the anthropology of China? Well, I was an anthropology major as an undergrad, and I sort of had a vague interest in East Asia at the time, but I hadn't done any formal uh, you know, Chinese language study. Or I'd taken a few courses related to China. Uh, but as a sort of bridge between um, undergrad and graduate school, I ended up teaching English in China for a year. And within a few weeks of being in China, I was certain that I wanted to come back and do my my dissertation research in China. Um, I ended up actually applying to graduate school from China, which was a bit of a challenge at the time because it was sort of before the internet was widely available in China. So I was, you know, um, having to do a lot of correspondence by letter, but um, it worked out and um, um, I ended up, you know, I, at the time I felt like there was, and I still feel this way that there was a, a basically a research project around every corner in China. So, 
Now, the book that we're talking about today looks at the rise of elite networks of what you call newly rich entrepreneurs. And we'll talk a little bit about that category and what it means to, to um, call you know, a group of people newly rich. And all of this is a really interesting part of the work you're doing in the book. But it looks at these networks um, of entrepreneurs, managers of state enterprises, and government officials. And it looks at these networks from the perspective of gendered formations. And um, it's, it's really, really an interesting and very informative book that I think speaks to a lot of not just um, phenomena that were happening clearly in early 20th century China, but also phenomena that are very relevant um, to how we understand global geopolitics today. So it's a really interesting book. Now, you just mentioned teaching English in China, and at the very beginning of the introduction, you invoke a period in 1997 where you had just arrived to teach uh, English to Chinese students in Guangzhou. That was this, Is that the same year you're talking about? Yeah, it is. Um, Great. Now, you, um, you mentioned early in this book that it was conversations with your students that actually brought you to, ultimately, some of the concerns that you wind up exploring in the book. Is that how you came to this particular topic? Or um, if not, can you talk a little bit about how you came to focus on this particular subject? Sure. Well, the, definitely my conversations with my students, I think, sort of planted the seeds of this project. I mean, coming to China as someone who was, you know, without much of a background in China studies at the time, I was, as many casual observers are, I was sort of interested in this, um, you know, the kind of seeming paradox of a, of a country still officially committed to communism in which you had these dramatic uh, inequalities and disparities in wealth. And, and I expected my students or just ordinary Chinese people that I spoke with to sort of be outraged by this as well. But what, was, what really struck me from the beginning is that there, that discussions about inequality were, were rarely framed in terms of wealth, but they were, instead they were often framed in terms of morality. So I mentioned in the book, you know, my male students were really outraged that um, these, in their minds, sort of undeserving nouveau riche um, farmers, you know, were, were, were now attracting, you know, wives from the nearby town um, that, and that, you know, there were rumors of some of these nouveau riche businessmen having mistresses and, you know, second wives. And this was really what seemed to attract their attention more than just the disparity in wealth per se. So that, that kind of looking at the nexus, I'd say, of, of wealth, morality, and gender I think well, that that idea was sort of planted in my head through those conversations. And then the, the project sort of um, grew from there. I mean, a couple other things I think also inspired it. I mean, one was a desire to do field work um, in a big city that wasn't, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, or Guangzhou, where a lot of um, social science field work was being conducted at the time. Um, and, and then this desire also, I think, to look at a group, you know, we have lots of fantastic studies of what we might call, you know, the new poor in China, you know, both, you know, um, studies of, of peasants, of migrant workers, of laid off factory workers, but the studies of elites, of, and in particular of new elites, have been relatively few. So um, I think that those were also kind of inspirations in the back of my mind to get away from the big cities and to, st- to try to do what anthropologists call studying up you know, studying um, you know, powerful uh, groups rather than marginalized groups. So how did you settle on Chengdu as a field site in the first place then? Well, part of it was this desire to get out of, you know, get away from the East Coast. Um, and 
in the late late 90s, you know, the central government um, embarked on this sort of develop the West campaign, which in some ways is still going on today. And so, you know, I, I had the idea that I could sort of see the, a process that had already been going on for a while in, in, the, in the coast, in the east of China, um, sort of see that happening um, in Chengdu as, you know, that Chengdu was sort of a little bit wasn't quite as far along in its in its economic rise as some of the coastal cities, um, and but part of it was also definitely sort of non intellectual and non academic in that I really liked the food in Chengdu and <laughs> <laughs> the people seemed pretty friendly and uh, and in retrospect I, I honestly think that. Um, given the nature of my project and studying elites, I think it would have been really difficult for me to pull it off in a place like Beijing or Shanghai. I mean, it was going to being a Chinese speaking foreigner, you know, in Chengdu in the, in the, you know, right around in the early two thousands, I still stood out a bit, you know, and people were curious about me um, in a way that they certainly would have been, wouldn't have been curious about me, you know, in a lot of the coastal cities. So, I mean, I even think today, if I tried to do it today in Chengdu, it might not be as successful because I would just be a dime a dozen of, you know, Chinese-speaking foreigners. So. <laughs> so you mentioned that this did begin as graduate work and it began as a dissertation. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit before we um, get uh, more in-depth into the chapters of the book itself and some of this really fascinating ethnographic fieldwork that you describe in the book, how did you move from the book as a dissertation to um, the book as a book? Were there any kind of major transformations along the way or any surprises or um, ways that the project substantially transformed from one format to the other? Well, um, I received some... I guess what turned out to be good advice, which was to write my dissertation like a book. And, and, you know, from the very beginning, I had that advice in the back of my mind. So I think I wrote a very undissertation like dissertation on um, at least, you know, that's what some many, some readers told me, um, you know, and, and I maybe I'm the first person in the history of academic publishing who, who published a dissertation and was told to put more of a literature review in <laughs> rather than, you know, the, the, the most common, you know, comment is, you know, take out, take out the lit review or pare it down or, you know, trim it a bit. And I actually needed to put a little bit more lit review in there. Um, so I, you know, I, it, what, the biggest challenge actually moving from dissertation to book was just thinking, having to, to think and, and really make a lot of difficult choices about audience. You know, with, with dissertation, you ultimately, you know, you need to please an audience of, you know, three to five dissertation advisors. And that's what really matters. Um, and the, the real difficulty I had in, in going from dissertation to book was now I've got you know, not just an audience of a couple people, but multiple audiences, you know, there's the sort of the China studies audience, the anthropology audience, and then perhaps given the sort of the nature of my topic, there might even be, you know, a broader just readership who's just interested in China who might stumble across my book and, and try, you know, and I, and I sort of realized that certain revisions I made that were going to please one of those audiences were likely going to alienate the other. And so that, that was the real challenge. And I think what I ultimately decided on is, you know, I'm just going to write 
the, the, the book that I would want to read as, you know, an anthropologist and who's interested in, in China. Um, and so that's, that was the, the way that I kind of resolved the, <laughs> this sort of tendency, you know, I would wanting to try to prove it's try to please these very, in what in my mind were sort of often somewhat disparate audiences who are going to be interested in different aspects of the book. One of the really fascinating things about the book that comes up right at the beginning, right in the introduction, actually, is your discussion of the kinds of fieldwork that went into the project, both at the very early stages and um, in terms of the kind of relationships that you were able to build that eventually led up to the ability to work with certain people as part of your ethnographic field before the book, but also the field work itself. So I would love, um, if you wouldn't mind, if I could ask you about just a couple of aspects of that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I have to ask, you know, everyone probably asks you this when, right. um, in the book, and this is the, the hosting the Chinese TV show, right? Right, right. Several times in the book, you mentioned an experience as the host of a Chinese TV show. And I think this was, hmm. if I'm, I'm reading correctly, 2003, 2004. Uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's right the beginning, right at the beginning of 2003 was when I started and it carried over into 2004. Right. So can you talk about that a little bit? How <laughs> specifically, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you could talk about that itself for several hours, but, um, how did you, well, specifically, I guess for our purposes, how did your experience doing that actually shape the project? Sort of, did that have any, a meaningful or substantial effect on either the kind of research we, you were able to do for the project and or the way you thought about the project and your research trajectory and the kind of narrative that you wanted to provide? Yeah, it actually it had a profound effect. And, it, and I didn't even realize it until many years after the fact, really when I was writing the, the dissertation and then revising the book, how much uh, an impact that experience had on on not just making connections for my research, but really how I thought about, you know, some of the, even theoretically frame some of the aspects of the book. So in, let me first begin by saying that that, you know, it, it sounds quite glamorous, but this was about the least glamorous TV show <laughs> one can imagine. I mean, in reality, um, it was a kind of glorified infomercial. So the, the framing of this, sh this show was a foreigner looks at Chinese culture, but the sort of the, so a, a very, like an example of a typical show would be that I would go, I'd say today we're going to learn about Chinese tea culture and we would go profile a tea shop that was paying us to profile them. And it was, you know, and, we, and so the show was a very not so subtle advertisement for this particular tea shop. Um, and we would did the same thing with real estate, with Chinese restaurants, all, all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, it, it was not glamorous at all. And in fact, we the show that aired before ours was um, an infomercial for a hospital that specialized in like kidney disorders, I think. So, <laughs> so but it, it proved, um, you know, from the very beginning of, of this project, I was faced with a challenge of, you know, how do I make contacts for my research? You know, that I'm not studying a kind of, you know, a particular geographical community or neighborhood, you know, the new rich are scattered about this city of, you know, 7 million people. How do I meet them? And, and I sort of, you know, through, various contacts. I was able to meet a few people here or there. I was able to do, you know, to, I did some translation work for a couple business people and that got me a few contacts, but really it was ultimately the show where, where we were constantly profiling 
these these businesses, and I was meeting the you know the entrepreneurs who had who owned these businesses. Um, that I was able to develop this kind of core network of of entrepreneurs in Chengdu who became kind of the core group of, that I did my research with um, for the in the subsequent years. Now, the nature of that research is actually also fascinating. So, you describe. Um, in the course of uh, your research for the books, having to spend as part of your ethnographic fieldwork lots and lots and lots of afternoons and evenings with businessmen who were entertaining clients, partners, and state officials. Most of the fieldwork, at least seems um, from my perspective as one reader of the book, from what I gathered, a lot of the fieldwork consisted of informal conversations in these kinds of contexts. Mm -hmm. So one can imagine that this would um, provide a lot of challenges for you as an ethnographer, um, both, you know, physically, I can can imagine, (laughs) um, but also in other ways. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? What were some of, I mean, what was that like for you? What were some of the challenges of doing um, ethnography in that way? And are there any particular experiences that you encountered in the course of this fieldwork that stand out as being especially notable for you and that you'd want to talk about? Well, um, maybe there's, if I can begin this question by kind of answering the second part of your last question. I mean, one one other thing that one other experience I had at the TV show was, you know, even though my official title was co-host in reality, what I spend most of my time doing was was the kind of, you know courting and whining and dining our clients and potential clients, and it was through that having to actually do that kind of courtship is what sort of um, you know I think that having to participate that in that myself is what sort of led me to focus on that aspect of being an entrepreneur in China when I started to uh, to uh, to do sort of full time field work after I ended you know, my time with the TV show. So, um, and I think that was, it was also that, that experience of the TV show got me a sense of what being an entrepreneur in Chengdu in particular is often about, you know, going to tea houses in the afternoon (laughs) and playing cards with, you know, potential clients or government officials and then going to a banquet and then going out to karaoke. And I sort of, um, knew that that would be, that would be the proper, kind of venues um, and sites to, to uh, conduct ethnography. And, um, and they were, it was challenging. I mean, one of the, um, the challenges is, you know, how not to be, to sort of know when to switch from a sort of, you know, a kind of casual conversational mode to a more formal interview register. So there were lots of really important, you know, uh, kind of conversations or key, key moments when, you know, I didn't have my notebook out, you know, or I, you know, I wasn't really in kind of full ethnographer mode. And, and I, because of that, I sort of missed out on, uh, on some, some, I think some important things. Um, another challenge was that there were certain activities that these, you know, my informants participated in that, which, you know, I either was unwilling or unable to, I mean, one of the primary ones was just gambling, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, playing mahjong with your or or various card games with your business associates is a really important part of maintaining those business relationships. And um, a, I didn't have the mahjong skill, um, and B, I didn't have the money <laughs> to to participate in that. And so, you know, sitting around for you know three or four hours, you know, and sometimes longer, while people play mahjong is a is a pretty is not a very you know enjoyable way to spend an afternoon. Um, so the, you know, and 
Another thing that I learned in the t- through my experience courting our clients in the TV show was sort of banquet etiquette and ritual. Um, my one of the producers of the show was a very good teacher um, for, for that, and 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 so this gave me a real advantage when I was when I started to, to sort of venture off on my own conducting fieldwork in that I was already fairly skilled in kind of the art of, of Chinese banquets and how to drink and the, the way, proper way to make a toast. And this, I think, made a, a real impression on some of the um, entrepreneurs that I was, you know, hoping to kind of court for my research. And so my function with them, you know, sort of evolved into that of, you know, I was basically an accessory or a you know, what they call in Chinese, a page yuan, like literally, a, you know, a, a professional accompanier <laughs> for drinking uh, at these banquets. And so, and that was really, you know, as anthropologists, we, we sort of strive to, to figure out, you know, we, we would like to make our, our field work a reciprocal exchange. So what can we give back to the people that we're studying? And, and, and ultimately, my my solution, you know, what I gave back to these, these to the you know the, the new rich business people I was doing my fieldwork with was I helped them out in this you know what for them is often a very kind of tedious and unenjoyable task of uh, you know banqueting and entertaining all their clients and government officials and and various business partners. So I became a sort of accessory in that entertaining. And they would call me up and say, well, I've got an important official that I'm having dinner with tonight. You've got to come help me. And, you know, and I would do my duty and, you know, show up at the, at the banquet. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I won't. Um, I won't ask you to go into this, and I won't phrase this as a question um, because I. But I can imagine in this kind of an ethnographic situation, especially given the kinds of um, sorts of leisure activities that were involved in building these relationships that you discuss in the book, and we'll get to that in just um, a few minutes, or um, maybe a little bit more than that. I can imagine that this kind of ethnographic fieldwork involves occasionally dealing with some uncomfortable situations. And mm-hmm. um, I can, uh, it, but it's the, the book that resulted was fabulous. And so whatever, uh, whatever ethnographic complications that must have, ar- you know, arisen for you, for you, I can't imagine spending years doing that and not, you know, coming into um, contact with situations that were difficult. Um, whatever you did to get through that, it's um, great because the book itself really, offers a picture of the kinds of, as you call them, I think, organized leisure or ritual mm-hmm. leisure without mm-hmm. being judgmental. Right. right. Um, so that's a really, really difficult balance, especially given these kinds of topics to strike. And I think you did it really beautifully here. Well, thanks. Uh, it, it was, it, yeah, it, it was difficult. I mean, having to sort of witness and to some extent, you know, maybe not fully participate, but at the very least observe, you know, practices and activities and that I really, you know, on a personal level found, you know, ethically and morally troublesome and having to, to kind of distance myself from those without being viewed as kind of passing judgment on my informants was often really tricky. Um, and, you know, my kind of go-to solution was just to, uh, to play up my foreignness and say, you know, well, as an American, you know, or as a foreigner, you know, I don't, we don't do this or we don't do that or something like that. And that, once I got to know people, that was usually a acceptable explanation. <laughs> so <laughs> to kind of feel, gu- I should probably feel guilty as an anthropologist sort of playing up, you know, 
centralized cultural differences, but they, they served me well in getting out of tricky ethical situations. <laughs> so the, the kind of fieldwork we're talking about took place in Chengdu, and you're very careful in the book about being very specific that this is a local study of Chengdu. But at the mm-hmm. same time, a lot of the, um, I think, conclusions and arguments that you're making and particularly or can extend beyond the particular case study of Chengdu as a regional site and to a more national context and have they have more national implications. So we can talk about that over the course of um, talking about the individual chapters as well. Okay. Um, so, I'm sorry, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, please. No, I think, no, I mean, I just am agreeing with, you know, your, your framing of it. I mean, that's exactly what I would say. I mean, some, some there's definitely an aspect you know, a kind of uh, leisure is at the forefront of Chengdu life in a way that you might not find in other Chinese cities. So, you know, business that might be conducted in a, you know, in a boardroom in somewhere in Shanghai might be conducted in a tea house in Chengdu. But I think the sorts of networks I describe, the role, you know, some of the entertaining and courtship practices, um, you know, and the gendered nature of these networks, I think is something that, that definitely you'd find in you know, most other Chinese cities. And this gendered nature of this work is really important. And so the, the book really focuses on um, the transformation of networks of elite, um, elite, let's say, business making, um, elite network making from the reform era in terms of masculinization. Mm-hmm. You're looking very carefully at the masculinization of private business and of deal making in China. And that has ramifications as well for women who were involved in this process. And we'll talk about that over the course of the conversation, both women entrepreneurs, but also women who are involved in this kind of gray area or this sort of um, pleasure, um, beauty, or what is it, a beauty? Beauty, right. Exactly. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that as well. So this is about masculinization, but women are mm-hmm. a really important part of the story of masculinization mm-hmm. and are also dealing with that as well. Other aspects of um, this kind of shifting morality that you are talking about in the book include the emergence of new cultural, social, and political forms, including new forms of leisure, new forms of consumption, new forms or new patterns of marriage and ways of practicing sexuality. You also talk, um, and we'll, we'll get to this by the end of the conversation, about the nature of official corruption, sort of how to understand corruption more flexibly as part of this kind of interlocking civil and state um, set of relationships rather than something that's um, external to it or something that's sort of outside of these networks and an individual problem. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really interesting. You're looking at the interlocking relationships of all of these factors, um, and you're doing this um, in a number of different ways. So let's look. Let's start looking at um, sort of. In, let's get, start getting into the chapters and looking at the different kinds of arguments that you're making in the context of exploring these different aspects of the of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So a lot of the story that you're telling us in the book focuses on the importance of social networks or guanxiwang. Mm-hmm. This has, of course, been a popular topic among lots of scholars of China, and you invoke a lot of the um, really important, relevant literature in the book um, so that we can understand the context that you're working in. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing here with Guanxi is actually importantly different from some of the prevailing literature on this. So because this seems to me to be one of the important contributions that you're making with the book, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that your research and findings about Guanxi networks differ 
or your conclusions differ from other major work on Guanxi and Guanxi networks in China. So what are, how are your findings about Guanxi networks um, importantly different from what we would read elsewhere? Okay, well, I think for me, the, the key contribution that, that I'm, I'm trying to make in the book is to sort of look at Guanxi as a gendered phenomenon. Um, and this is, you know, something that other scholars have explored with, explored a bit in, in the past. Um, but I really put gender and Guanxi, I w- want to see in particular these business, these sort of Guanxi networks in business as a gendered phenomenon. And I really see that as sort of my key uh, intervention in the literature. Um, and, and in many ways, you know, my, my argument um, sort of turns um, argument made by Mayfair Young in her in her seminal gifts, uh, gifts, favors, and banquets uh, on its head, where she saw kind of Guanxi as an implicitly feminine social formation against this sort of implicitly masculine, legal, rationalist state. Um, and whereas, whereas I argued, in fact, that we, the kind of Guanxi, at least as it's emerged as this um, formation in, you know, among the elite, in, in the business world in China is, is, you know, is definitely sort of is best understood as a sort of masculine form in which women can participate, but um, often at a cost to their reputations, which is something that, you know, I talk about in chapter five, and we can talk about later. Um, and this, you know, this idea just came from, you know, going out night after night with these um, business people and seeing that, you know, at the end of the evening, what was often left was, you, you know, even though the banquet may include women, but at the end of the evening, there were a group of men <laughs> drinking, you know, in, a, in the private room of a karaoke club, often accompanied by female hostesses. And, you know, and, and that these were the kinds of relationships formed in these settings were really crucial to um, you know, to their business success. So I think, you know, that's probably my key intervention in this, in this literature. Now, in fact, after um, the first chapter, which gives us a lot of this historical and theoretical background and talks in depth about a lot of the um, kind of broader phenomena that we've really just touched the surface of um, in the conversation, chapter two actually takes us into the texture of the, the practice of, it, of at least one set of spaces for the production of these networks. So you're looking um, in this chapter at the formation of these elite networks through spaces of ritualized leisure and entertainment that include private banquet rooms, they include saunas, massage parlors, and especially KTV clubs or karaoke clubs. Mm-hmm. This part of the book is arguing that the goal of business entertaining in the spaces, and this is really something that very um, you, you make the point very clearly that this is very much about business, although um, at the same time, participants in these networks have a hard time separating sort of play from work, and this is um, this is not an easy. This is not just you know guys chilling out and relaxing, right? It's like the mm-hmm. right, right. but that part of what's happening in these spaces is a transformation of relationships from what you call interested, calculated, commodified relationships into the kinds of relationships that are rooted instead in you know, what we might call irrational sentiment mm-hmm. and affect. And this is really the basis for the production of these business networks in China, um, or particularly in Chengdu here. So can you talk about this? Um, why are KTV clubs so so important? What's the scene there? What can you expect um, in a typical night there? And how can you talk a little bit about the this importance of this transformation 
of relationships that happens. Sure. So this is, I mean, this is something that's a bit kind of counterintuitive to people. I mean, you have a lot of, um, a lot of scholars and a lot of observers of China who are, who basically see these kind of relationships between, um, between business, between entrepreneurs and government officials as, as more or less um, a kind of completely instrumentalized, completely calculating, as largely governed by interest and money. So, you know, in, in, in some accounts, this is sort of simply about bribery, about, you know, entrepreneurs bribing government officials for, you know, for contracts or for state support or that sort of thing. And what probably the most interesting thing that um, I found by spending so much time in these settings is that what entrepreneurs in, emphasize to me over and over again is that, that, that bribery is never enough in these relationships, that any, and anyone can give a bribe. Um, and, and so it's precisely because anyone can give a bribe that this entertaining becomes all the more important, right? So I understood, I understand this entertaining as an attempt to kind of create some kind of experience or emotion or, you know, bond that's not going to be, uh, subject to commodification, right? That's some, that's resistance to, to just being, you know, that, so an official, so the, the idea is that these bonds between, entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurs or between entrepreneurs and government officials are rooted in something that's not going to, um, that's rooted in something like sentiment that's not going to be commodifiable, that's not going to be, that's not going to dissolve when another person comes along and offers more money. Um, So this is, so it's this kind of, so I understand entertaining then as an attempt to kind of create some sort of, um, non-commodifiable um, or, you know, sentimental uh, uh, attachment in these relationships. So, and that's actually an important um, point that runs through another aspect of this part of the book in which even though you're arguing here, and I, I think very persuasively, that sexual entertainment is a really important form of business entertainment, at the same time, commodified sex in some way. So commercial sex actually doesn't increase a man's status in this context, right? Because the, the, there's an absence of this sentiment. I mean, it seems right. to parallel the, the kind of phenomenon you're talking about. Right. And, and I think, I mean, that exactly. Um, and, you know, the broader context is that m- most of my informants and, you know, m- many ordinary Chinese kind of understand contemporary Chinese society as a place in which people's loyalties are sort of, you know, uh, are for sale in some sense, in which increasingly um, interpersonal relationships are, are commodified, are governed solely by self-interest. So in this context, and this is the key point I'm making, if you can, if you can develop or cultivate relationships which are rooted in something else besides interest and simply, you know, and money, which are non-commodifiable, um, you're sort of, it's, you're, you're not sort of, you're not only at a kind of advantage, um, you know, professionally from the perspective of business, but you, it's also a way of claiming a kind of elite status and distinction. So, and, you know, these, so it was very important, for example, for these um, male businessmen to emphasize to me that their relationships with girlfriends or mistresses were not about money that, you know, that, Oh, she's, she's interested in me because I'm a, you know, charismatic and handsome businessman, not because I'm buying her gifts and that sort of thing. So it's this, this distancing from, from commodification that you find this both in 
in these elite men's relationships with their with their their friends and lovers, but also even in their business relationships. This kind of denial uh, of being interested, of being in it for the money. Um, you know, so even you know, this is not to say that people weren't interested in calculating. They were all the time, but it was this was all couched in a rhetoric of often you know. Um, of affect, of friendship, of helping people out. Um, and, you know, they would even, even you know, very common phenomenon, for example, was for these uh, businessmen to refer to their patrons, either in the government or um, other more connected and powerful businessmen as their big brothers, you know, um, and, you know, to sort of speak of these relationships in the language of kinship. And young women actually play a really crucial role here, too. And you um, dis- you discuss in this part of the book the ways that by playing roles as hostesses and as mistresses, they're actually projecting an idealized masculinity. So again, bringing the, the importance of this gendered aspect of these networks um, onto the men that they accompany. And it's really important here um, that they're doing this by choice or that they are perceived to be. Right, doing right. Um, by choice. Right, exactly. So there's, I mean, one of the other um, arguments I'm making about this entertaining, I mean, other than sort of creating these, these, you know, quote unquote, irrational bonds that are sort of crucial for their business success. Um, the other thing that's happening through this entertaining is they're sort of constructing a particular kind of elite masculinity. And as you point out, women, young women play a key role in this process. And there's it's very important that that these even though many of these young women are being paid that they again that their their interest in these men um appear to be genuine and authentic you know authentic rather than simply you know paid for um and it's it's understood that you know only kind of um authentic interest and attention from young, attractive women can confirm one's masculinity um, can, and can confirm one's status as a kind of elite subject. Now, as we move from this into the next part of the book, you give us in Chapter 3 three examples of how some of these elite networks that are introduced earlier in the book play out in three different kinds of settings, but that are all related and some, are, um, some of which are interrelated. You start off this part of the book by talking about something that I think is, is really, really interesting here and really um, changed the way I thought about this in the context of Chinese history, and that's the problem of corruption. So, um, I, and I would love if you could talk a little bit about that because you're offering at least what I as a reader um, see as a kind of corrective to how we usually think of corruption in the context of state and civil society and relationships here, you're, you're kind of urging us, at least, again, this is what I got out of it, um, to, to think about corruption as something that's rooted in relationships, that's rooted mm-hmm. in strategy and alliances. It's not really about one person. It's about networks, which have actually their own form of morality. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk about that? Because I think that's it's really interesting and it's related to or as in part of um, this discussion in the book, you also relate this to uh, sort of trying to break away from some idea of an ahistorical and gendered human nature, mm-hmm. which is related to this. And I think this is interesting and important to talk about because this is really kind of the opposite of what a lot of people get in their you know first or second year Chinese culture classes, where 
you know, so much of the emphasis is on human nature and how did Chinese philosophers talk about human nature? <laughs> right. you're, you're really kind of interestingly complicating and historicizing this in the context of what may seem to be an unproblematic concept for people, corruption and showing the very richness and complication of this. So I would, so that's a lot I'm throwing at you. Can you just talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, well, I think I mean the easiest way to sort of summarize it is I mean this this really this idea came from you know people that I talked to during the course of my research and what what, what I kept hearing over and over again was people would would say well even if you have an official who wants to be who doesn't want to be corrupt um, who that he, that he because usually it's he you know won't uh, won't be able to survive as an official if um, if he doesn't engage in some kind of corrupt practices, that there's this incredible pressure, this kind of informal social pressure to use um, his official position to the advantage of people in his social network. Um, And so, so it's not, you know, then this seems to complicate how, how, you know, in particular, how certain, you know, certain strain of political science often thinks about corruption as really being about kind of an, an individual um, encountering a particular sort of structure or incentive structure, often, and whether you know, you know, particular political political institutions are set up in such a way that individuals might be incentivized to corrupt to to be corrupt, and 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 I realized that we need to think about to think about corruption in China. We need to see it as a product, not so much of an individual's calculation, but as um, this broader kind of social phenomenon, and in particular as really a direct product of the kinds of what I've referred to in my book as elite networks of these these networks that sort of straddle um, state and society that are often composed of, you know, of both government officials, businessmen, and in some instances, you know, what we might think of as a kind of criminal underworld types. And and that those those networks kind of have their own rules, logics, um, their own moral economy, if you will. And, and often so that, you know, corruption was often about individuals kind of or government officials in, in this instance, serving those networks and trying to, you know, to provide, you know, make sure that, um, uh, for example, an entrepreneur that that um, he's well connected with gets gets the con- you know gets a government contract or something like that, um, and so I mean I think that that's you know I, that's really the key point that I'm trying to make to see this as these that corruption as not just about an individual encountering an institution but about uh, these kind of broader networks that you know, over that extend beyond the state. Um, and in some instances, you know, they, that might pull that, that sort of the impetus for corruption is not necessarily coming from, you know, a greedy official, but from, from, you know, relatives or friends who might be asking that official for favors to use his or her position, you know, to the, to their advantage and, you know, constant demands. This is something I saw witness firsthand or the constant demands that these, um, that officials, uh, constant requests for favors that um, officials get from all sorts of people, you know, that they're being, they're just, people are literally almost lining up at their door to ask for special favors and treatment. And, you know, to refuse them all is from, you know, from a kind of inter- perspective of interpersonal morality, perhaps seen as, 
you know, immoral. Um, Someone needs to do an ethnography of, of the life of a university dean, I think. Some of these issues are not unrelated. Um, just if I can add one yeah. thing, I mean, to tie it sort of back to masculinity, I mean, there's this sort of, um, uh, you know, this sort of elite masculine persona that I saw, you know, mimicked among government officials, business people, even, you know, college deans of being someone who's, who's well-connected, who's able to, in a sense, transcend the rules, who's able to distribute various, you know, favors and benefits to people um, in, you know, in his social network. And so to, to be unable to do that, to say, well, my hands are tied, I'm bound by the rules, is to kind of, to really you know, from the perspective of these men, it's to kind of be embarrassed, is to sort of be emasculated, um, you know, to not be able to kind of partake in that sort of, that sort of generous patron type, um, you know, mode, I think is, is often sort of, I mean, I think that more than anything is the mark of being, you know, an elite man of status in China to say, okay, your, your friend needs a job. Let me make a phone call. You know, I can make it happen. Oh, you know, your your um, your friends having trouble with um, you know getting a permit for something. Oh, that's no problem. I can take care of it. You know, to to be able to have that sort of command um, is is something that I saw lots of men, even when they didn't have it, they would often pretend that they did. You know, um, and I saw that more than anything as sort of the marker of of, of elite status among among men in China. Now the chapter goes on to give us three in depth. Um, more than snapshots, I think, of cases in which um, these networks play out in different ways, and the individuals who are who you follow, who are really at the center, or at least part of these networks, are dealing with the kinds of pressures and different kinds of demands placed on them that that's involved in this process. So you look at um, actually the published confessional narrative of a corrupt official, Li Jin. Mm-hmm. I'm really concerned with, and there's an interesting discussion in this part of the chapter of the economy of face mm-hmm. as an important um, component of a government official's power. You also look at the career of a real estate entrepreneur, which is in really interesting. And of course, um, the the middle one is one that you know I, I can't not ask you about, for <laughs> which is brother Fatty, um, uh-huh. and the, in the context of a sworn criminal brotherhood. And you describe the um, part of the fieldwork in. Uh, your ethnography of Brother Fatty as, as being bored a lot of the time, and I just love that country. You know, uh, we think of criminal brotherhoods, you're being bored all the time. I think that's great. Um, this part of the chapter actually argues that criminal brotherhoods are, are not really, that we might understand them not as hostile threats to the state, but instead as providing revenue and forms of government, uh, or governance rather, to the state. So did you want to say anything about that? Because I think this is, um, again, one of many parts of this book that really upends what we think about when we think about some of these concepts like, you know, um, criminal brotherhoods. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this, and this is probably also, a well, maybe not a departure from Chinese history. I mean, the, the, the ways in which sort of legitimate institutions and illegitimate institutions, you know, can, can kind of overlap, I think. Um, I mean, you certainly find that during the, the Republican era in China. And that was what was, that was, you know, immediately what was surprising to me when I, when I got to know this, this guy who I call Brother Fatty, who's, you know, at first I didn't realize he was, you know, I thought he was, you know, more or less kind of a legitimate entrepreneur. And then, you know, 
when the first time he held court for you know, 50 of his um, subordinates who referred to him as big brother and bowed to him and, you know, toasted him, I realized something else was going on. Um, but, you know, also at these, um, at one of my early dinners with Brother Fadi, I mean, the, there were several police officers there who made no attempt, you know, who obviously knew who he was and made no attempt to hide their status. And this, and he would refer to his relation, you know, that con- that he was constantly meeting with them, kind of discussing what was permissible and not permissible in his activities. And it, it seems so different from how we think about, you know, the relationship between, you know, the police and the criminal world in the U S and, um, and I think ultimately, you know, they, they are able to, and, you know, the, the state is able to kind of regulate the underground economy through some of these, um, people like Fatty who ensure that, you know, that, that criminal activities are controlled, that they're not too visible, they don't get too out of hand. Um, and I also argue that they, they kind of manage this, you know, potentially unruly population of, you know, of, of often, you know, not particularly well-educated bachelors, you know, from the countryside who come into the cities who are, who are the ones who are the primary participants in the underground economy. And, you know, this ties in just to the, with the point I made, the, Kind of concept I introduced earlier of the informal network, um, you know, the or the elite informal network in China, where you have this, you know, often through social ties that are formed through banqueting and other entertaining practices, you often have, you know, government officials who are connected with members of the underworld or businessmen who are connected with government officials and as well as members of the underworld. So you see this kind of these networks which are able to permeate multiple domains, you know, both, both state and civil society, both kind of, you know, the legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate world of business and this kind of underworld, uh, underground economy. Thank you. So as we move into the um, last uh, parts of the book, we move into a discussion here in chapter four on cons- a discussion of consumption. So chapter four looks at the ways that these elite networks that you've been describing, giving us such a, an interesting fleshed out picture of, have transformed patterns of consumption in urban China. And I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but I'll just mention for um, scholars of consumption, for people who are particularly interested in those issues, this is interesting because you're drawing a distinction between this urban Chinese case and the dynamics of consumption as understood in the work of perhaps one of the most famous theorists of consumption, Bourdieu, um, who focuses instead on capitalism in the West. So you're suggesting here that we think not in terms of a Bourdieuian distinction, but rather of recognition of the importance of what you call the legibility of economic value over Mm -hmm. um, some notion of taste. Now, I'm sorry, did you want to... Oh, yeah. No, I think, well, I mean, I'll just, if, if I can just jump in, I mean, it's sort of tied in, in some ways, it's it's a theory of, um, it's an attempt, you know, so in Bourdieu's theory, you have this, no, you know, this notion of capital and the convertibility of capital that's at the heart of it, that where, you know, people have money, then they, they transform it into cultural capital or, you know, social capital, that sort of thing. And what was really interesting um, in, in, when conducting my fieldwork was to see how often that failed, you know, that people had, you know, that the new rich were in some, in some 
some sense sort of complained to me that, you know, well, I have money, but now people don't see me as a, as a moral person or as a cultured person, you know? So, so, so in some ways I, I'm using my ethnographic material to kind of challenge the, you know, Bourdieu's model is incredibly powerful and definitely influenced my thinking, but I just wanted to complicate the notion that, you know, for, you know, transforming, you know, economic capital into other forms of capital is not as straight as straightforward a process as perhaps Bourdieu's model might imply. And in the in particular in the case of China, in which um, you know, these the the social networks and the kind of the perceptions of, of one by other members of these networks was so important, uh, this process can become even more fraught. And that people often uh, describe themselves as sort of consuming for others or being even even having to buy things that they didn't necessarily like just for the sake simply for the sake of pleasing others or can you know and so um you know so i introduced this notion of recognition uh, as an alternative to distinction as a way of talking about how um consumption elite consumption in china is often about um about visibility about being recognized as a particular kind of subject by by others um, rather than distinguishing oneself um, you know, from others as we tend to think about it in the West. Great. And, and this actually brings me to um, just another thing I wanted to mention about this chapter. And if you have any thoughts on this, uh, please jump in as well, which is uh, related to this. You make the point here that though many elites, this is related to what you were just saying, they're viewing autonomy and a, a kind of living for oneself as a marker of social capital, maybe social distinction, as a marker of their social status. At the same time, the practice of distancing oneself from these social circles to focus on these more solitary pursuits actually you know, undermines the very networks that provided the foundation of the elite status and recognition in the first place. And so this is one of... I think as a reader, um, one of the really wonderful things about the book is that there's some kind of contradiction, at least one at the heart of every single one of the chapters that you're giving us, in which you're really urging us to, to think again about something we might take for granted. And this is this contradiction between the role of the individual as individual versus the role of the individual as part of one of these elite networks is really interesting. And you kind of see... Um, through this movement, how this kind of um, tension of existence between these two poles produces these kinds of social forms and produces the person in some ways in these contexts. It's really interesting. Well, thanks. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm glad that that came through. That, I mean, that's exactly the point that I was trying to make. And this was, and it was, it was something that emerged in several interviews where, where you know, it, uh, I had this experience where some of my interviewees kind of in the course of talking to me and answering my questions sort of realized, you know, wait a minute, like it was, you know, I thought getting rich was, would allow me to kind of do whatever I wanted and to not have to bother, you know, courting people and, you know, whining and dining every night. But, you know, now I'm rich and I find myself kind of trapped by these social obligations. And in fact, I'm even more trapped than I was before, you know, and it's this, and it was a really kind of powerful, um, kind of realization that many of my interviewees had in, in talking to me that, that I tried to, to convey in the book, that this expectation of what being, you know, someone of who, you know, having a lot of wealth and status was going to be. And then the reality of it is, is to often be, you know, as, as they, many of them said, is to live, to have to live for others, you know, even though they're, 
you know, would have the means to kind of isolate themselves uh, to do so is to kind of, you know, to risk undermining the foundations of their sort of social recognition and status. And one of the, before I move to the, um, the, penultimate chapter, but I, I need to ask you about the women entre- entrepreneurs, right? I also mm-hmm. just wanted to mention for listeners that there's also a wonderful account in chapter four of Fruit Plate. <laughs> and so I think if it's not already being done, someone needs to do an, a, either a photo essay or some sort of piece just on these fruit plates that are um, presented as gifts in these KTV clubs. I just think the fruit, I wanted to see lots and lots. I now want to see lots and lots of fruit plates. Yeah, well, it was one of the biggest regrets of my time in China that I didn't have my camera when I, you know, there's the whole the fruit plate episode that I describe in the book where it really, I mean, it's, it, it had to be seen to be believed. I mean, it was, it, I think, the, you know, five feet long and, you know, <laughs> two or three feet high. It was, I mean, it was, it was unlike, um, you know, it was fruit sculpture more than a fruit plate. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book. I mean, one of the, the great triumphs of my research in China was the day that I was presented with a fruit plate, <laughs> which was, which was just, um, you know, unlike the, the elaborate fruit sculpture that many of my VIP friends would receive, mine was kind of, I think it was two slices of watermelon and maybe half of an orange, <laughs> but, but it was still an important moment um, as well as it was, you know, recog- as I argue in the book, a kind of recognition of, of my status, you know, and a recognition that's not available to all, uh, to all people who frequent a club, so... So as we move from the fruit plates to um, the beauty economy, um, chapter five looks at two different groups of women closely, women entrepreneurs who we haven't yet um, been talking about and mistresses of wealthy men. And you look in this chapter at what you call a beauty economy in reform China and and, and, contemporary China. And also you look closely at female entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, and the particular challenges that they face in the context of these elite networks. So could you say a little bit about um, maybe first, what is the beauty economy and, and talk a little bit about that. And then um, perhaps we can, before we conclude, we can say a little bit about women entre- entrepreneurs and where they fit in this story. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the term uh, beauty economy or in Chinese, uh, meinu jingji, is, is, wasn't coined by me. It's something that I think was coined by um, some Chinese journalists. And it was a term that I often heard my, my informants use. And basically, this refers to the use of you know, young, attractive women um, in, in various sorts of commercial endeavors, you know, whether, you know, having for example, it's at trade fairs, it's really common to hire like attractive university, female university students to hand out promotional material. Um, or, uh, you know, I think more broadly, it just refers to the kind of um, commodification of women's femininity and, and sexuality that you find um, in, in post-Mao China. I mean, another closely related phrase is um, fan, like eating the rice bowl of youth or... Um, sometimes translated as eating spring rice in which, you know, these various kinds of occupations in which young attractive women are able to kind of cash in on their feminine capital. And there's a, you know, I found very kind of starkly divided reactions to this phenomenon where some people saw this as a kind of rational, totally understandable entrepreneurialism that, that, well, they have this capital, so why not cash it in? Whereas others really, you know, 
were were very troubled by this and saw this as evidence of a kind of moral decline in post Mao China. And the the ubiquitousness of this these practices and you know where um, in which young women kind of cash in on their attractiveness and sexuality made posed a real problem for women entrepreneurs who were often accused of doing the same. You know, and it was very common um, for you know for there to be there's a lot of you know in my field work a lot of people knew each other and they were often talking behind the backs of other people. And it was very common for friends and associates of women entrepreneurs I knew to say, well, you know, she, she really made her money by, you know, through, through men more or less, you know, either accusing them of sleeping their way to the top or of having, you know, a former husband or lover who was an important individual, um, basically accusing them of, you know, cashing in on their femininity to get ahead. And so, women entrepreneurs were often kind of at pains to distinguish them, themselves from women who they, you know, who are, they viewed as participants in this beauty economy by arguing that their success was um, simply, was really the product of their own hard work. Um, and, you know, and in fact, pointing out very rightly so that, that they paid of, you know, often a price to their reputations by participating in business, which, you know, by going to, you know, going to, banquets and drinking with their partner, their clients, and, you know, sometimes going out to KTVs were not really seen as the proper activities, you know, for a quote-unquote, you know, young Japhunia, woman from a good home, you know, in urban China. So, um, you know, uh, and what's, what was, um, I ended up devoting this whole chapter to women entrepreneurs because I, I realized that they were, in fact, some of my best informants, you know, because they had be given their kind of marginalized perspective on on business in China and on these these sort of masculinized networks. I mean, they saw the, the sort of social field I was trying to describe very clearly. Um, and, you know, I think one of the most surprising things was their kind of um, articulation of a sort of meritocratic individualist ideology as, as, as against men. You know, they, a really common theme from my interviews with them was that, well, you see all these successful men in China, but they've just relied upon, you know, their, their, their bros and their guanxi, and, you know, they actually don't have any talent or ability. Whereas women, because we don't, we can't rely upon these gendered networks you know, of, of men uh, in power, we have to kind of forge ahead on our own and only rely on ourselves and our own ability. Um, and this was, you know, I think it was kind of surprising, um, you know, because given also in the West, our tendency to kind of associate individualism and merit- meritocracy, you know, and as sort of a, sort of an implicitly masculinist kind of uh, sort of mode and discourse. It's also really interesting to put it in those terms because, again, we have this really interesting contradiction where on the one hand, which, which again, I think comes up in every single one of the chapters. It's one of the really interesting things about reading the book is that in here, on the one hand, we have women entrepreneurs claiming that, you know, they did it on their own um, because, you know, they're kind of put in a position where they have to sort of claim that. And on the other hand, we've just been reading a book that looks at, the importance of not doing it on your own, right? And not right, perceived right. of as doing it on your own in order to create the kind of power that emerges from the net, these networks. So it's a really interesting, again, dynamic that you're giving us in that chapter. Right. It, it, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a real discrepancy between... I mean, what, 
what one of the real challenges in writing the book is often kind of the, the practices that I observed were, were very different from, <laughs> there's a real discrepancy between how people described what they were doing and what I sort of observed as a, you know, somewhat distant observer. And that people were, you know, took a lot, were very careful about framing their own practices in a particular way to appear as moral or as properly elite or as not, you know, just a Baofahu nouveau riche. Um, but often some of their, the framing of their practices sometimes contradicted what they actually did or had to do. Uh, <laughs> so it, it was, you know, it's sort of sorting that out. You know, I think one of the challenges of, of, doing ethnographic research in China is that there's often such a discrepancy between a kind of front stage presentation of a particular phenomenon and then a sort of backstage, you know, actually, you know, the backstage, how it's actually happens in practice. And it's, and it's, you know, and it, it's even more challenging because it's not as if one is more real than the, it's not as if what's going on backstage is the truth. And the, you know, the front stage is a kind of false veneer, but there's often a, Rather, there's often a kind of complex relationship between the two. And it's, you know, I think some, some researchers in China, they maybe, they get the back, all the backstage or they get all the front stage, but trying to move, move between those two levels, between, you know, kind of official public representations and then kind of practices behind the scenes can be really challenging. So, John, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, and I'm already over time with you, but I want to just um, just really mention one final thing before we come to the the closing questions of the interview. Sure. Um, you, there is a conclusion in the book, and it's a conclusion that does a lot of really interesting argumentative work and conceptual work that relates the kinds of arguments that you've been making and case studies that you've been bringing us into in the book to understanding um, a wider range of more contemporary problems or issues um, in understanding society in China right now. And so I'm not going to ask you to talk um, about that necessarily, but I just want to signal for listeners that you are bringing us out in this part of the book into issues of, or into sort of a way to take our understanding after having now made it through the five chapters of the book of the complicated networks of Guanxi um, in mm-hmm. particular and, and the factors that are involved in this to bring that out into understanding how this plays out in terms of a wider social and public morality, how we understand things like faulty construction, mm-hmm. um, what you call tofu dregs construction, and other wider social problems that this this case study that's very focused can perhaps help us inform. Um, so rather than asking you about one particular part of it that I pick out, before we come to the conclusion, is there anything in particular in that conclusion that you've given us in the book that you would like to talk about or mention or that, that you would like to signal as particularly important to you as part of the argument that you're making with the book? Well, I think I can probably summarize the conclusion in one sentence, which is more or less that the, the sort of the moral economy of these elite Guanxi networks results in very immoral consequences for the public good. Um, and and I see that as a sort of corrective to, to some claims that it's kind of that uh, viewed sort of Chinese society as sort of lacking in morality or being in a state of where people have no beliefs or no ideology. And, and it's because it seems like the this, 
you know, these social networks that I describe have an incredibly profound influence on people's, you know, sense of morality. But um, unfortunately, it's they're not it hasn't resulted in a kind of public oriented morality. It's very much a, a sort of privatized morality of one's, you know, local social world that doesn't extend to others. Um, but I already see, you know, in, in, I end the book with what in fact will likely be my next research project. And quite literally that the, the book ends with the last sentence, you know, um, leaves off where my next research project will, will likely begin, which is this kind of search for, some sort of framework of belief or morality that I find among many um, new rich and new middle class in China. You know, that there, you know, I mentioned this in the book, a phrase that I heard over and over again in interviews was, uh, you know, uh, well, Chinese people don't have beliefs anymore. No one believes in anything anymore. And um, many saw themselves as kind of actively searching for some sort of framework of belief. And in some instances, it was uh, religion. You know, in some instances, it was philanthropy of some kind or doing some sort of charity work, but this kind of quest for um, some kind of, I think also a, a sort of a different kind of connection to others than these, you know, this, this, the constant um, give and take of their social circles, you know, that maybe that, that, that maybe they can forge a connection to, you know, to the society as a whole, you know, through philanthropy or through forms of religious belief and practice. Well, John, thank you so much for taking for letting me take so much of your time. It's such an interesting book, and I think our the um, the nature of the conversation and the fact that I've kept you so long is really testament to how interesting the book is on so many levels. Clearly, we didn't have a chance to get through even half of um, of what we should have gotten through in the chapters. It's a very rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, no, I think I've hit upon, you know, the, the key themes of the book. In fact, I mean, I want to thank you for your very well-informed questions, because in many ways you did a better job of summarizing my, my argument in the chapters than I might have done on my own. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, but I think, uh, no, I, I don't think I would, would add anything uh, at this point. Well, you've already mentioned um, very briefly the next project on belief and morality among the new rich in China. Is that where you're heading next? Is that the um, what you're currently inspired by? Yeah, I'm actually headed to China next week um, to sort of do some preliminary research for my next project. I mean, one one aspect of this of this broader uh, kind of quest for belief and meaning that I find particularly interesting is, is, and this is, you know, quite literally in the last paragraph of my book is um, in, in Chengdu in particular, you find a lot of wealthy Han Chinese who become devotees of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, and specifically Tibetan Buddhism, not, um, you know, various kind of Han Chinese strains of Buddhism. So in this, and it's precisely, you know, this attract the attraction of Tibetan Buddhism in, in many ways is that it, it it represents in their minds everything that kind of contemporary urban Han Chinese society is not. You know, it's viewed as spiritual instead of materialistic. It's viewed as kind of pre-modern instead of modern. And and um, um, but it's it's interesting though because their relationship to it, at least initially, is often mediated by money. You know, by giving big big donations to temples or to particular. Um, you know, reincarnated lamas. So I think there are a lot of, again, you, you've, you've gathered from my book that I'm drawn to contradictions. <laughs> there are some interesting contradictions in the, in that practice. Um, so that there's definitely, um, I think that that may very well be, um, 
you know, my next research subject. Well, best of luck with that research. Have a great time researching in China, and we'll look forward to talking with you again about that project. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, your well-informed questions and for giving me the chance to talk about my book. Of course. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.